I'm Tim Burrows. I'm Sergio Alzadi. Our guest today is Peter Grester. He's one of Australia's most legitimate voices on the topic of press freedom in Australia and around the world. Until a decade ago, a foreign correspondent for Al Jazeera, Peter was detained in Egypt and imprisoned under false terrorism charges. His release was a cause which united the journalism industry around the world. Peter now leads the Alliance for Journalists' Freedom. The organisation is campaigning for a new law for better protection of reporting in Australia. Unmade. Peter, I don't know how to introduce you. Are you a journalist, an academic, a campaigner? What's what's your label? <laughs> Terrorist, perhaps. Um, I guess it depends on on, on who you are and, and uh, what what do you want to talk about. Um, I guess my I, I, my business card or my um, my email sign off my email signature says journalist and academic. That's probably the best way of of describing. I'm a bit of a hybrid. Uh, my partner jokes that I, I have a portfolio career, so uh, a lot of things to a lot of people. As many journalists do now. So the, the, the Alliance for Journalists' Freedom, I presume that's the main mission of your career now. Um, yeah, I mean, my university, Macquarie University, would probably not be particularly happy if I described that as my main mission. But, but I wear both hats. I'm, I'm half-time at Macquarie and I'm half-time executive director of, of the Alliance for Journalists' Freedom. And, and thankfully, the two those two hats actually dovetail quite nicely. They, they support one another. Macquarie is very interested in a lot of the policy work that we've been doing through the Alliance for Journalist Freedom. We've been doing a lot of thinking about the way that journalism itself should be protected and regulated in Australia. And, and that that's very much a kind of academic field. Um, and likewise, it works for the AJF for me to, to be wearing a professor's hat and, and um, have the kind of academic resources behind me. Well, we'll talk about both sides of that portfolio uh, in the in the conversation. Um, I suppose the other thing we have to get into as well is, um, I guess when I look at your career, is it a fair, fair to assume that really your career is delineated as to what happened before and what happened after your captivity in Egypt? Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, everything changed for me in 2013 when I was arrested in Egypt. In a lot of respects, that destroyed my old career as a, as a correspondent. It made it impossible to go back to that life. And we can, we can get into the reasons for that later. But, you know, before then, I was, I was an old-fashioned jobbing foreign correspondent. You know, I'd worked for 25 years across Africa, the Middle East, Latin America, covering, doing the kind of work that, that foreign correspondents typically do, covering crises and, and um, you know, and foreign stories. In some of some of the world's most troubled spots, and then after Egypt, it became what Egypt did was turn me into a campaigner and an advocate and someone with authority to speak around media freedom issues, and so that's really what what I do now. In a lot of respects, the Egyptians tried to shut me down as a journalist, but what they did instead was give me a platform, give me a voice, give me legitimacy to, to speak about media freedom issues. And that's really what I've been doing ever since. I found myself sort of, as, as we were preparing for this conversation, really sort of thinking back to that period. And I think it, I remember it was 2014, and I'm sure you'll correct me if 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 I'm wrong. Because I, I just remember being, working in the Mumbrella newsroom at the time. And whenever something, some news about you came you know, we always obviously had the TV running in the in the background on a news channel as one does. It always captured the attention of the newsroom. 
in the same way that I kind of, I just remember thinking of going to, I think it was a Walkley event um, that was going on again while you were in captivity. And it wasn't one of those moments where there was a quick acknowledgement from the stage. It just felt like it was something hanging over the room for the whole night. And it, it just, the whole case, the whole affair seemed to unite the Australian journalism community in a way that maybe other similar cases haven't. Um, do you yeah. have a sense of maybe why that was, why it became so central? Well, it, it wasn't just the Australian journalism community. It really was a, a global journalism community. I've often thought about why that happened. I, I'm not sure that I can put my finger on it. Me and my colleagues, the, the two other colleagues that were arrested in, in, in Egypt, um, along with our other co-accused who were involved in the case or who the Egyptians accused of being involved in the case but weren't actually arrested, we, we represented a something of a minor United Nations of, of journalists. I'd worked for the BBC for 15 years. Um, obviously, I was working for Al Jazeera. Um, some of our other co-accused were also British. Uh, Mohamed Fami, one of the, my colleagues who was arrested, was a Canadian Egyptian. He'd worked for CNN. I'd worked for CNN. Um, I'm half Latvian, so the Latvians got involved and brought the European Union into the case obviously as an Australian, um, Australian journalists were very interested. And so a lot of the kind of networks that we had brought a lot of journalists in a lot of places into the story, into the fold. I think also the way that we described it um, as an attack, not on, our, on anything that we had done in particular, but as an attack on media freedom or the principle of media freedom, helped define it in ways that a lot of journalists could understand. I don't think we didn't do that particularly consciously. It wasn't as if we set out to um, become icons of media freedom and symbols in the way that you've described. What we were doing was trying to make sense of what was going on. And I wrote two letters very early on after a few weeks of our, of our arrest, describing it in those terms, basically saying that the connections between um, there was no evidence that we'd been involved in any of anything that, like the charges that we'd been accused of. We'd been accused of pretty serious terrorism offences. And the disconnect between what we'd actually been doing and the reality of the charges was, was, was so vast that it couldn't have anything to do with what we'd been up to. It, the only logical explanation was that this was an attack on, on media freedom and therefore we were there as, as representatives of the principle rather than defendants of, of any particular set of, of allegations. And I think in describing it in those terms, a lot of journalists around the world were able to, to connect with it. As I said, we, we didn't set out to become icons in the way that it turned out to be, but I'm also very proud of the fact that so many journalists saw it as something that they needed to get behind. Peter, one thing that's really striking is like your stoicism and level-headedness in the face of incredibly traumatic experiences. How did you maintain that stoicism when, you know, you're trapped in like a tiny claustrophobic Egyptian prison cell surrounded by criminals and corrupt politicians? It's a good question. You know, it's it's one of those things where I'd like to, to put it down to, you know, sort of personal strength and courage and so on. Uh, but in fact, I think it was, there were a lot of circumstances that were, 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 were dumb luck. So I'd been through a rather difficult breakup some years previously and, and to try and steady the ship, I'd done a, a fairly heavy duty meditation course called Vipassana. 
It was 10 days of silent meditation, no contact with anybody else, no communication, um, no speaking, nothing. It's just sitting in 10 days of, of pretty much sitting and, and, and uh, contemplating your own thoughts. And when they put me into prison, um, the first thing that happened was that I went into solitary confinement and I realized that actually I've been here before. I've got the tools for this. That really was, you know, in a way, a, a happy accident. Um, it was the meditation was a really crucial way of, of staying sane, of, of recognizing that we we're in some, of recognizing the kind of crisis that we were facing and, and having a set of strategies, a set of, a set of mental um, skills, if you like, to, to deal with imprisonment. Because after all, one of the things I realized very quickly was that prison is all about your head. Everyone focuses initially on the physical confinement, but we had all of the things that we needed for physical health. We, we had food and water, and the food wasn't great, but it would keep you alive. We had water and shelter, um, and in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we were physically going to be okay. In that environment, the only thing that's going to get you is your own mind. The whole point of prison is to mess with your head. And so with the meditation techniques, I was able to really recognize that and, and keep that under control. But I also think framing it as a media freedom issue meant that we didn't take it personally. We didn't take our situation as an attack on us as individuals, but, uh, but on the wider principle. And I was able to see myself as a representative of, of that principle and, and see that I was fighting this on behalf of all of our journalism colleagues. And I don't mean that in any high-minded way. It was just a kind of psychological strategy for, for recognising that this was something bigger than ourselves, that it wasn't something I needed to, to take personally, that there was no point getting bitter and twisted um, at my own bad luck and recognising that I actually had a, a duty, a responsibility to survive the prison um, for the sake of, of everybody else that, that our case represented. What I want to know is, would you classify Australia at present as a country that promotes or enables a democratic press at all? Um, it's a straightforward question with a fairly complicated answer. Superficially, I think that our press is reasonably free. We've, anybody that opens up their mobile phones and is faced with that fire hose of, of news and information that pours out of it on, on a daily basis is you know, probably going to think we've got, we don't have a problem of, 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 of media freedom and if anything, we've got too much of it. Um, but if you, if you scratch beneath the surface, what you realise is that Australia has some of the most restrictive legislation on earth when it comes to media freedom. We are the only country in the democratic world that doesn't have um, press freedom or freedom of speech written into its constitution in any meaningful sense. It's implied in our constitution through what's called the implied right of political communication, but that even that is contested. And so without any, any local, any domestic equivalent of the American First Amendment, which guarantees press freedom and freedom of speech, what we've seen is all sorts of national security legislation that in all sorts of ways, both directly and indirectly, intrudes on the ability of journalists to do their jobs. It intrudes, it, it exposes journalists' data to overbearing investigation. It exposes journalists' sources to, to um, criminal sanction. It 
criminalizes a lot of other, otherwise perfectly legitimate journalistic investigation. And we know from the research that my colleagues at the University of Queensland have been doing that this is having indisputably having a chilling effect on public interest journalism. You only need to look around in our newspapers over the years to see just how important that public interest journalism is. We don't know. It's impossible to quantify the journalism that hasn't been done because of the legislation. But as I said, it is indisputable that, that good journalism is being silenced, is being crushed. In that respect, I think we, we are actually very, very bad. We sit quite low on the world press freedom rankings compared to where most people think we should be. What countries that people generally associate with a complete absence of press freedom would you say Australia's almost or pretty much equivalent to? Let's put this in a scale. Well, okay, so it's hard to make comparisons. I mean, we sit below countries like Latvia, my other, you know, country, mm. other country, my, we sit behind uh, Timor Leste, for example. Wow. Um, which is, I think a lot of people would be surprised. Namibia is another country that's ahead of us on the World Gosh. Press Freedom Scale. There's a World Press Freedom Ranking, which is run by an organization called Reporters Without Borders, Reporters on Frontier, RSF. And we hit a high watermark of um, 18th position in the world um, out of, I think it's about 180 countries back in 2018, 20, yeah, early 2019. After the Australian Federal Police raided journalists from two news organisations back in 2019, raids that really exposed precisely the kind of things we've just been talking about, um, Australia slipped down the, the rankings. We then went to, I think, 36th position. Last year, we climbed a little bit up to, I think it's about 29th position. But in relative terms, we've, we're not at, the, not at the place, as I said, that most people would think we ought to be. Most people, I think, in, most Australians would probably imagine that we are up in the top 10 or 15 in the world. We're, we're, we're certainly nowhere near there. We're not the worst. We're not, we don't see journalists routinely thrown in prison. But the legislative framework that we do have makes it incredibly difficult for journalists to, to work effectively. And, and that's why we're nowhere near what we should be. Now, speaking of which, has the Australian government, in your perspective, developed more antagonism towards journalists recently? We've got a bevy of examples, you know, like massive delays in processing freedom of information requests, decreased cooperation from government government agencies and federal police. Yeah, I, I think I think Australia Australia has a really crippling culture of secrecy. Um, after the AFP raids, the New York Times took a good hard look at all sorts of, at our, at our national security legislation, at our culture of secrecy, at our freedom of information laws, at our defamation laws, at our privacy legislation. And they concluded that Australia may well be the world's most secretive democracy. And I, I honestly don't think that's hubris. I think it is a fairly decent assessment of, of where we're at. Um, and since then, um, I think things have only deteriorated since 2019. The government, um, the current government has made some some noises, has made a few steps towards improving it. Um, I'll acknowledge that. But we really are nowhere near as open and as transparent as, as we need to be to have a, a good, healthy democracy. You know, we've just seen that in recent days, the way that um, Mike Pizzullo, one of the, the most powerful civil servants in Australia, um, has been exposed by the press for, for leaking all sorts of texts, amongst them um, um, promises or to, to, to actually try and further restrict media freedom in, in our country. 
Now, ironically, um, he also previously called for whistleblowers to and leakers to be locked up, didn't yes, he? Yes. Which seems to have a certain irony to it now. Yeah, especially given that he actually was responsible for a few leaks himself. <laughs> it certainly seems to be that way. Now, something the Alliance did back in 2019 was to create a white paper trying to sort of set the foundations for what you labelled a Media Freedom Act. Has there been any tangible progress towards that? Uh, towards a Media Freedom Act? Yes. Yeah, the, well, at a, at a policy level, no, but the AJF has continued to, has been doing a lot of work in the background. And in fact, we've got a draft of the Media Freedom Act done. So the idea is we're never going to get a constitutional amendment that enshrines press freedom. If it's proving so hard to pass um, legislation or pass a constitutional amendment to protect uh, Indigenous Australians or give us Indigenous Australians a voice, we're hardly going to get anything to, <laughs> to protect journalists through. So we've come up with an idea for a, for a piece of legislation that works very similar to the Human Rights Act in Queensland and, and the ACT in Victoria. And those acts do three things. They basically say that Parliament must always consider human rights whenever they're passing new legislation. They say that the courts must always interpret existing legislation in ways that are consistent with human rights. And thirdly, that civil servants must act in ways that support human rights. And we think if you replace those words, human rights, with media freedom, then you're somewhere in, in the ballpark. But what our Media Freedom Act would do is inject a positive obligation to consider media freedom at every stage of the judicial process and, and the bureaucratic process. We're not saying that media freedom has to trump everything all of the time. There needs to be limits, but there needs to be a presumption in favour of press freedom, in favour of transparency rather than the opposite, which is the way it is now. We also think that you need to have a presumption, well, that presumption in favour of, of publishing needs to extend to the journalists themselves. So in our Media Freedom Act, what we've done is written a clause that says that if you are a if you are producing journalism according to a set of professional standards, then you deserve the right to be assumed by the courts to be to deserve protection in law, and that it's up to the investigating agencies, whether it's ASIO or the Australian Federal Police or any other of the agencies, to show the courts why you have failed in your obligation to protect. To, to, to live up to professional standards. But the middle of this is a definitional problem. One of the difficulties that a lot of people have been grappling with is how do you define journalists? How do you define the, the, the person that you're trying to protect? We're taking a very different approach. Our Media Freedom Act says that, I think, that trying to decide who is a journalist and who isn't is a fool's errand, particularly in a world where anyone with a mobile phone can produce content that for all, looks and sounds for all the world like, like journalism. We're saying that journalism instead should be thought of as a process, and a process that's a core, that, that um, is in line with a set of professional standards and ethics. Now, there's a clause in the Victorian Evidence Act which says that a journalist is someone who is in the business or occupation of producing news and information, and that's the old-fashioned approach. We don't think that's that's appropriate. But then it goes on to say the journalist or publisher shall be accountable, and in brackets, through a complaints process, to a recognised code of conduct. And that's what I think is the key. I think that if you, as a journalist, are prepared to make yourself accountable to a code of conduct, then the chances are that your work stands apart from 
everything else that's out there that looks like journalism but simply doesn't make the grade. Interesting. Now, I suppose I, I one one thing made me shudder a little bit was I had this flashback to when Stephen Conroy was the communications minister, mm-hmm. and he attempted to create legislation which would give greater weight to the body of arbitration, which mm-hmm. would have probably been some sort of successor to the Australian Press Council. Yeah. And that that in the end ended up being something of the sticking point of how do you how do you legislate for press freedom which which of course then comes with the government not having a say whilst also creating some sort of statutory power for such a body so tim here's here's how we think that this it's interesting that you mentioned the press council i'm a member of the press council so i i know and understand some of some of the challenges that the council has in our view, what we need to do is move from a system of corporate accountability, which is what the Press Council is. The Press Council is made up of, of publisher members. But if you work for a small local uh, regional publication, if you're a volunteer who works at a community radio station, um, if, you're a, if you're producing a, a podcast, an independent podcaster, you fall outside that system of, of industry regulation. So if we go back to that that process definition, what we think is would work is because the, the process definition doesn't stop anybody from producing journalism. It doesn't stop anybody from um, from qualifying for, for protection under the law if you're producing content that makes the grade. What we are saying is that if we have that process definition, then industry itself can respond to that definition by saying we will use that process definition as a way of as the basis for a membership organization, similar to certified practicing accountants, for example, we will set up an an association that will admit members who demonstrate that they know and understand the way the law works, know and understand their professional obligations and and apply those to their work on a routine basis. Members can therefore badge their work. They can say that we are members of the professional association. You can stick a little icon next to your byline so that members of the public can distinguish your work from everything else. Social media companies can use that as a way of boosting content up the rankings um, as trusted news and information. But crucially, the courts would then presume, would use that as a, as a, as a way of presuming that you deserve protection and, under the law. That model doesn't stop anybody who is not a member of the association from publishing. It doesn't stifle anybody's freedom of speech. And if you are producing journalism, but you still choose not to be a member, that's okay. If the federal police come knocking on your door, you can still claim journalist protection. It's just that the burden falls to you to show that you're actually doing the work to the required standard. So that way, what we are doing is identifying work that is consistently produced to a required standard and giving that work the presumption that it deserves protection without actually stopping anybody from producing journalism itself. We think that system would provide upward pressure on journalists to maintain stand, maintain their professional standards because I think that legal top cover and that badge would actually stand for something. It would be a mark of quality. It would be something that journalists would aspire to 
um, it would be something that would single their work out in the public eye from from everything else. And so I think you've got a system that works for both sides. I think I recall Julian Disney when he was chairman of the press council making a very similar argument that this sort of form of accreditation, this stamp of authority, should count for something with with the courts or whatever. Yes, yeah, exactly. We we, we shy away from that word um, accreditation too because accreditation implies something that is a barrier to entry. In other words, unless you're accredited, you can't work. And we're very careful to make it clear that this system would have to be voluntary and it would it must not stop anybody from from producing their own work. It can't be a, li- a limit to anyone's freedom of speech. All we were doing, all we would be doing is identifying work that has the legal presumption that it deserves protecting. And have you yet canvassed any of the big media players? And I presume if you were to talk to the the ABC, Nine and News Corp, you've covered quite a lot of the base. Have they yet expressed a point of view on that thought? They're fairly careful. They're fairly cautious about this. We've been careful not to, I mean, we haven't officially launched it and we're doing a lot of work at the moment to develop and to polish off the Media Freedom Act. Um, we've had to go through a very difficult process and a much longer process than I imagine to actually write a draft because we think we realised that we weren't ever going to be able to answer some of the more detailed questions that would inevitably come up unless we'd actually been through the process and, and, and written a draft and, and in the process of doing that come up against all of these these questions that we would, might not otherwise have thought of. And we need to do the same with a professional association. We need to think deeply about how it would work, how it would dovetail with existing news organisations, um, existing legislation to make sure that we've got something that's robust. So we haven't gone, officially launched it in, in um, and gone to Nine and News Corp, but we have been having a lot of conversations with individual journalists and editors. And the initial reaction, I think, is quite icky. Um, a lot of journalists immediately feel a little bit of indigestion when they hear about um, anything that sounds like accreditation and I understand that but when we explain how it works in detail when we explain the legal top cover that it would provide and the kind of recognition in public that it would offer then all of a sudden people journalists start to start to get it and almost universally they they support the idea and how would you create the momentum towards an act becoming a law because of course you know it feels like there's a couple of ways you know one is you get a hugely invested um politician who happens to be in power who happens to be something that's really important to them and they have the momentum to get it through or i guess potentially you create something more bipartisan or or the other thing is or or you get in in a politician is somewhere in the middle who just makes it their topic and they use it as a bargaining chip when they're 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 settling something else how are you going to get there there's an there is another way and that's also wait for a crisis wait for something like a phone hacking scandal um, which you might recall particularly was in the uk um, yeah it's 2012 i think the news of the world phone hacking scandal yeah exactly that triggered the leveson inquiry which led to a whole upheaval of the way in the way in which news um, in the UK is, is regulated. 
or we end up we wait for another AFP raid, something like that. Something will happen, I think, to create a crisis in in, in media. I mean, it, it, it routinely happens. We can't say when it'll happen, but when that happens, we want to be able to say, look, we've got a solution that's 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 ready made. It's oven ready. It's 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 here. It's ready to go. We don't necessarily think it's a wise strategy to simply sit on our heels and wait for that moment to come. What we're doing is speaking to a lot of independent politicians. Um, we know that um, the Teals, for example, are interested in the ideas. We've been speaking in particular to people like Zoe Daniel, who is, um, who is a former ABC journalist herself and is really interested in these issues. There are other people. We know that um, Andrew, people like Andrew Wilkie, who you know, came to politics after he blew a whistle himself, is a big fan of, of, of these ideas. And so there is a very strong constituency in the crossbench that are interested. We know that a lot of conservative politicians are interested because these ideas play very well with the notions of transparency and accountability in government um, and freedom of speech. So I think there is ideologically a lot of support across the political spectrum. What we don't have is the momentum that you spoke of. We're still trying to figure out the best strategy for that. It may be that we we get a coalition of Teals who, and independents across benches who perhaps control the balance of power and who are able to make this a bargaining chip, as you, as you mentioned, in other legislation. You know, the government, Mark Dreyfus in particular, has spoken often about the need to protect media freedom. Uh, Dreyfus, the Attorney General, held a, a roundtable earlier this year um, in which he's specifically to talk about media freedom. So it's on their political agenda. We haven't seen the kind of movement that I think we, we need to see, and the government doesn't seem particularly keen to introduce a Media Freedom Act along the lines that we've been talking about. But I think that's because there's just no head of steam, no political political movement in the way that we need to get it on the agenda. I think we can create that. It's not easy. Most of the public, as I said, really doesn't understand the need for it. It's really only those people who are in the weeds that, that, that get it. But if we can make it clear that this really is an issue and that a Media Freedom Act and a professional association together, I think, have the potential to radically improve the way that the media works in this country and the way that it holds government to account, then I think a lot of people would be really interested in supporting it. Well, we've touched on some of the kind of the the, the big media companies. Um, now, I guess in your career, you you've always tended to sort of towards the public interest journalism. I guess in in the sort of reporting you did. Um, do you think that news can be a business? Controversially, uh, no, I, I don't think it can. News has never been a business. In fact, even in the old days, the pre digital days when newspapers were known as rivers of gold. It wasn't news that produced the gold. It was advertising. It was classified advertising. News was the reason that you might have stopped to buy the paper. But what financed the news on the front pages were the classified ads and the display ads for the inside the papers. That's what created the millions and millions of dollars for the news proprietors. And it, in a way, because that money was independent was disconnected from the newsroom it didn't matter if you know if you had a car to sell or an apartment to rent you weren't particularly worried about what was on the front pages you just went to a, the, the local dailies you you bought your ad and, and paid your money and you know sold your car and rented your room 
And so that freed up that kind of wall, that, ch- that separation, that great wall of China that separated the editorial side from advertising, allowed, the edit- allowed journalism to, to proceed independently, but with a really good solid lump of cash behind it. Now, though, what digital disruption has done is, is brought news and advertising, the news stories and advertising and subscriptions together in a way that has really forced journalists to monetize their work in a way that I think is really unhealthy. We know, for example, that a lot of the, one of the metrics that drives journalists or that uh, journalists, that news companies use to judge their journalists' performance is the number of subscriptions that their stories generate. And we also know that there's artificial intelligence that sits over the top of journalists' work in a lot of newsrooms and assesses how many subscriptions a particular headline and top paragraph will generate. And so if you're a journalist who's trying to figure out how to pay the bills and make sure he keeps his job, and you can see that a particular headline is only going to create three or four subscriptions, but if you tweak it a little bit, you make it more sensational, you beef it up, you make it exciting, you'll get five or six subscriptions according to AI, then that's what you're going to do. That kind of system privileges journalism that is sensational over serious. It privileges speed over accuracy, um, polemic over sober analysis. That might make for a reasonable business model, but it doesn't help serious, responsible journalism, the kind of journalism that we need to to produce a healthy democracy. And so I think we need to figure out ways of decoupling news itself and the production of news from the sources of revenue. I've got some ideas about how that might work, but the fact is that I don't think, in answer to your question, I don't think it's healthy to have news as a business, particularly if we need news to be a public service as well. That's interesting. I remember, oh gosh, it was a couple of years back I interviewed um, Hamish McKenzie, the founder or co-founder of Substack, which is the platform that Unmade is on. And his argument as a former journalist himself was, at least with subscriptions or paying subscriptions, you are having, in order to get the customers back, you are having to deliver them something they would value. And his argument was that it led to a higher quality of journalism than advertising funded journalism, for instance. Are we, are we really talking a spectrum where at, at one end you've got ad funded advertising somewhere in the middle, you've got maybe subscriptions and somewhere at the other end, there's the, the, the completely removed way of funding it. I'm not saying that subscribe subscription model doesn't work for some platforms. Clearly it does. I mean, it's worked well for, for big organizations like the New York Times and, and maybe Substack is, is, is doing really well out of the subscription model. But think of yourself as, a, as an editor of, a, of um, a city newspaper and you've got your staff um, and you've got, a, you've got your bills to pay, you've got your staff to employ, you've got subscribers that you know you've got to keep, keep coming in. And you've got a choice about how to deploy your journalists. Now, you can send your journalists off to do a two-week investigation into the procurement practices of the city council. It's a really important sort of story. It takes time and effort and work to produce it. It'll probably cost you thousands and thousands of dollars to get that story. But it's what journalism, the kind of story that journalism is, is really good, good at and should be doing. Or you can send a couple of journalists down to um, Garden Island in Sydney with a Tinder account um, to see what 
what sort of Tinder profiles might attract some American soldiers and American sailors who've just come into port and, and, and produce a story about, about how American soldiers are hooking up with Aussie girls. You know which of those two stories is going to get the attention. Now, that scenario actually happened. I feel a little bit guilty about it, but I clicked on on those stories, uh, the stories about the American. But my question yeah. is, that, that's advertising-led clicks, isn't it? Would you have chosen to pay to subscribe to read that story? But I think that is around driving subscribers as well, because that was behind a paywall. Um, the headlines were there, but the paywall was also there. And that was the sort of thing that, you know, as I said, I felt a little bit grubby, and but I signed up for a, a free period and ended up paying a little bit of the subscription before I finally cancelled it. I think that the subscription model helps, but I don't think it solves the problem. I think we need to find a way. If we need journalism to have a public interest role or public service role, then we need to have public money going into journalism. I'm not saying that every newspaper needs to be publicly owned um, or news outlet needs to be publicly owned. We've got the ABC and that does very well. Um, and certainly the ABC is, is Australia's most, pub, most trusted news brand, and for good reason. So imagine if we had some public money that came from, say, a levy on, on digital subscriptions, on your data, data subscriptions, like a levy on data. That money went into a central fund that was administered by an independent organisation that said that we will subsidise commercial news that reached a certain level of subscribers and clicks, a certain level of, of number of readers, unique page views perhaps, and we'll subsidise you up to maybe 20, 30% of your operating costs provided you meet certain editorial standards and values and provided you dedicate a certain proportion of your news to stories that are, un, are important but undercovered, to local council coverage, to local courts, um, to that sort of that kind of civic stuff, the stuff that's important but not sec not necessarily sexy. That would provide a um, subsidy to commercial news. It would still leave a substantial room for, for commercial innovation, but it would also mean that every newsroom or the newsrooms that take those take that subsidy have a, a degree of accountability to the public that they're reporting for rather than the shareholders who employ them. And I think that would that would potentially change change the game. I want to make it clear: I'm not proposing this as a member of the AJF. We're not. This isn't a part of our policy. These are just some ideas of my own about how we should be rethinking the way that, that journalism is funded. But I, I do think, whether we go that route or some other route, I do think we need to think very seriously about how we pay for for journalism if we want it to, to play an important public service role in our democracy. Well, as um, as we've already touched on, you're also an adjunct professor of journalism. Um, what do you think students coming through now should be taught to get them ready for a journalism career? And I suppose what, what's behind that question is, is journalism at the learning stage about learning the theory or learning the craft? Tim, that's a fantastic question. It's something that I and my colleagues have grappled with a lot. My, my view is that the craft is changing so quickly, the craft skills that you need are changing so quickly, that 
those skills are best left to the news organizations themselves. You need to come out of, a, of out of a university degree with some basic craft skills. But I, but in my view, what's more important is are the critical thinking skills, the literacy skills, the, the civic education, the understanding of, of politics, the understanding of the way the law works, the way the courts work. It's the ability to critically think about stories and analyze them and place them in context in Australian politics and society. That's what makes good journalists. Everything else is window dressing. You can't really do the job though, unless you've got an ability to see and understand how these stories fit into the, into the bigger context. And that's where I think journalism education ought to be focused. This is really interesting because on the other side of the same coin, I'm actually a journalism student right now. I'm completing my journalism degree at Charles Sturt University, which, as you would know, Peter produced some of Australia's most prolific journalists, the whole Mitchell Mafia thing. And previously, I was studying the same degree at UTS. What I've noticed as someone who's been studying it since 2020, a lot of the core units for journalism degrees today, they focus way less on actual journalistic skills. I think in the whole degree, there's only one unit on media law. They don't focus on skills like interviewing, researching, news writing, entertainment law or media law. It's so much more now about like social media content creation, media theory analysis, you know, like looking at a piece on The Guardian. This is a piece on The Australian and you know, just comparing how they cover things. It's, it's all this really abstract stuff that, as a working journalist, has not contributed to my job whatsoever. Um, and a lot of the professors actually have expressed quite a bit of disdain for, or they're not very accommodating towards students who are actually working journalists at all. So what are the implications of that on the next generation of journalists? And I'm familiar with the whole knocking on the grass method prevalence that a lot of the old guard of journalists and big organizations think that, you know, the youngins are employing. Obviously, you, you, you want to turn out journalists that are, are so-called job ready. And that means that they've got the kinds of skills that they need to be able to go straight into a newsroom and start producing news or start producing content. But I, I think that that leads to a really superficial kind of, kind of journalism. What sets good journalism apart from just straight content is an ability to see and understand how stories fit into the bigger context. That's where I think the, the, the education needs to be focused. You need to understand the law. You need to understand how politics works. Everything you need to see how things fit into the into that context. And that's you know the obvious example is the debate around the voice at the moment. It's a re, it's a fairly simple story at one level. You can go off and cover a demo. Um, either a you know, pro-voice demo or an anti-voice demo and, and, and come away with a few vox pops and do a story that kind of covers it in, fairly, in a fairly shallow way. But if you've got a much deeper understanding of, of Australia's history with Indigenous rights, if you understand some of the challenges around, um, around introducing or successfully passing constitutional amendments, if you've got a really deep understanding of the way that Indigenous disadvantage is entrenched in this country, if you know and understand the way that racism and the history of racism in Australia, all of those things will inform the way that you report. And it'll be a much richer, much deeper, much more nuanced story. 
the skills to write something out quickly, that's pretty straightforward. You know, understanding how Twitter works, understanding how social media works is fairly quick and quick and easy and straightforward. It's it, what really matters is, I think, that that context, that deeper understanding. And that's what I'd like to see journalism students being taught. I suppose my my question is, I, I think of someone as an editor who, who have employed a number of people in both the UK and Australia. So I had the opportunity to compare. And if I think about my my own background, which was as a local newspaper journalist, so it was music to my ears earlier hearing you talk about getting people back in covering courts and council and all of those things. What struck me about the sort of training that I used to get in the UK system was absolutely, yes, there were components covering things like public administration, here's how it works. And that was an incredibly useful building block. But there was also the here are basic interviewing skills, you know, let's actually practice doing some interviews. This is how to structure an intro, which, um, I mean, said you tell me, but it feels like some some of those things you don't experience. And don't get me wrong, I'm not, in fact, I think that those are really important. Look, what I was about to say earlier was that journalists are specialised generalists. More than any other and any other career that I can think of, we need to have a breadth of understanding of, of politics and society. But you also do need those basic craft skills, as you said, interviewing, um, storytelling. Again, we're storytellers too, more than anything, more than anything else. And those storytelling skills are essential. But the storytelling skills are the same regardless of of the technology that you use. We can get too focused on on the detail of the technology and lose sight of the kind of fundamental underlying ability to recognise a top line, to ask deep and meaning, deep questions, profound questions, the kind of questions that will get you the, the answers that you need to tell the story that you're trying to uncover. But those skills, again, I think are universal. They apply regardless of of the medium that you're that you're using. That's what I mean when we talk when I talk about about the kind of generalist education. So in that event, do you think prospective or aspiring journalists are better off doing an economics or history or political science degree? You know, again, controversially, I think, yes, I think the better approach, if I was, if I had my way, um, we'd be running journalism as master's degrees and we'd be bringing in um, students who've already done politics or economics or music or science or any other specialist area. Um, what I want is, is journalists to have the critical thinking skills that a good education, that an undergraduate education teaches them, and then come to a master's degree where you'd learn how to package that up, how you'd, you'd get the higher order editorial skills, the interviewing skills that you've just mentioned, the storytelling skills, to take that knowledge, that understanding, and, and, cre- and use it to create good journalism. That's the model that I'd be promoting if I, if I had my way. Now, Peter, um, we, we, we've, we've run slightly longer than we intended, but it's been a very good conversation. And one of the things you said to us just before we started recording was, you always get to the good stuff at the end, which is, <laughs> has been true in this conversation as well, I think, or the best stuff. Um, now, so last couple of questions. One that just strikes me is almost going back to where we started. Um, your Wikipedia entry precedes the word journalist with former. Is that true? Are you done with being a working journalist? Yeah, no, nah. um, no, not really. Um, Tim, you'd understand it's 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 an incredibly diff- difficult habit to break. I can't quite give up that title. 
I'm still, you know, I don't produce daily news. My, you know, I've long since stepped away from, from being a foreign correspondent, but um, I still have a few documentary projects on the boil that are keeping my hand in, in the game. I can't quite kick that. I can't quite kick the habit. Well, uh, final question, which we ask all of our guests, what do your critics say about you and what do your supporters say about you? Depends on which critics you're asking, I suppose. Um, Could be any, anyone from a troll on Twitter to uh, the Prime Minister of Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Prime Minister of Egypt certainly calls me a terrorist. My mum calls me hopelessly disorganised. My critics, on my trolls on, on social media call me a hypocrite because I, I haven't been willing to support Julian Assange as a journalist. I absolutely defend Julian um, as someone who is unjustly detained. I think it's his detention is outrageous, but I just I can't go that extra step and, and say that he, he should be using media freedom um, as as a way of, of defending himself. I think that there are a whole bunch of other issues that we that he, he needs to be using. But you know, my critics are obviously obviously disagree with me quite fiercely and, and that's something that pops up every time on, on Twitter. I think there's a whole other podcast to be done on Julian Assange. Um, and what do your supporters say about you? Oh, well, my my supporters um, <laughs> describe me as a media freedom champion, um, you know, as someone who has shown a lot of resilience, um, you know, over the years um, as as a journalist with, with integrity. You know, those are those are labels that I'm I'm very proud to proud to wear, and and, and I hope that um, people would would feel that they that they're they're well earned and justified. Peter, thank you so much for your time. It's been fantastic to talk to you both. Today's podcast was produced with the cheerful assistance of Abe's Audio. Bye now. Toodle pip. Unmade. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio.